Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, it's Friday, September 20th and welcome to the Mick Clifford podcast. Every week, this podcast will bring you a slice of current affairs. We hope you will find engaging and informative. We look at the big stories of the week, but we also will delve into some of the off-agenda stories that we have featured in the Irish Examiner and our unique interpretation of those stories. My guest today is Jared Mannix Flynn, who is a city councillor, an artist and a survivor of one of the state's notorious industrial schools. Uh, Mannix, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. Mannix, just to kick off initially, um, we'll get in to talk to you about your life and your work, but um, you found yourself in the news recently and you penned a piece where you suggested that on-street begging should be criminalised. Well, I didn't actually say that it should be criminalised, but I said that there should be a sanction around it, that it should be made like you know, unlawful, like as it I said, to be unlawful, in, yeah. in, in terms of a bylaw, where Dublin City Council would enact a bylaw, not unlike you know that you can't play football in the park or you can't play football on the side. One street. thing that would strike people about that is, and as you're perfectly open about it yourself, when we come to the, to the autobiographical film you've just made, you're somebody who suffered some severe deprivation and I think at one stage you were on the streets yourself and people might extrapolate from that that perhaps you would be sympathetic or empathetic to people who find themselves in that situation. I have no problem with them. I'm compassionate about it. I understand people's difficulty. I understand people's difficulties great but there's two sides to this coin. One is those that are on the streets and I mean in 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 their droves. The other is the citizen who are on the streets also. And they need to be protected. Also, the people who are out there panhandling on the street need to be protected as well because in many cases, the subculture there is basically very dangerous for individuals that are begging because there are people who would rob their money. There are other beggars who would claim that, they would, that that's their pitches, etc. But an instrument needs to be brought into place that makes the public domain safe for everybody. I'm not suggesting that we're going to get rid of begging altogether, but I'm just saying that you need an instrument that gives the public and also those that are out there begging that this is against the bylaws of Dublin City Council. And it's a bylaw here. We're not asking, like, you know, for people to be jailed. We're not looking at the Vagancy Act. We're simply saying that out there on our streets, there is a huge amount of begging. Some of it's genuine. There's no question about when that. When you say that, you, you, you only think some of it is genuine. Yes, yeah, some of it's genuine. Quite a lot of it is not genuine at all because I would be out on those streets and I would see plenty of people out there who tell me that they're homeless. And I know damn well they're in Dublin City Council good housing. I know plenty of organised begging. The Garda Sheikhan would be aware of that from certain communities and certain individuals that would be well organised and sent out there by their people to beg. I know of lots of situations, I know people who are begging for heroin, people, and I also know people who are genuinely in difficulty and I help them. I know people, as I say, you know, who go out there on a daily basis and they make good money. But Mannix, if you mind me saying, when you say some are genuine, does that quite possibly create an environment where the general public might be suspicious of most, if not all, people they see begging. I think the, the general public out there on any one given weekend in Dublin are appalled by what's actually happening. That's not without compassion. People understand the difficulties. But when you're standing on a street corner and seven people approach you begging, or you're walking down the street and there's a person lying on the ground in a comatose state or whatever, 
you, you're just looking at this constantly. Now, when you look at all the organisations... Is that a reflection of society where it is at the I, I, I think it's an industry. I think it's an industry both in terms of if you go and get money on the street, that's where you're going to get it. But also the organisations that charge themselves with actually st- supposedly representing the poor get tens of millions of euros and do nothing about it. In the meantime, what we have in our streets and what we have in our cities and towns is an epidemic of, you know what I mean, of panhandling. That's absolutely out of control. I've got elderly people who won't walk down their street. I've got people that simply won't go to mass. I've got churches, I've got priests who are saying, is there any possibility that you can ask that person to move? Now, there's a whole load of aggressive begging. There's a whole load of begging in relation to, like, you know, addiction. And as I say, there's organised panhandling. Remember, for everybody that's out there begging for heroin, and there's a lot of drug use out there, that money goes directly into the criminal gang. So every five or a ten or a twelve quid that you give the organisa- those individuals goes into those the coffers but, but of, man, of, of the gang. Whether, whether it's heroin or whether it's enough money to buy the next meal, surely it's desperation in the vast majority of cases that drives people to beg for money on the street. There's a whole load of things that drive people to drive to, to beg on the streets. But the point of the matter is that out there at the moment, what you have is you've got a culture of begging. So when I was out there begging and when I was out there living on the streets and trying to get money for alcohol, it was a very different scenario 20, 30 odd years ago. And what if people had suggested that you were there that you didn't really need to do it? I didn't time? really need to do it. I didn't really need I had addiction problems. I, I didn't need to go and beg. I but but to having get, addiction problems I, is a need no, as well. I, I needed to get treatment. That's what I needed to do. That simply wasn't particularly there and that's what happened. What you have in the situation now is that you've got a homeless situation, you've got people living in tents, you've got people living in sleeping bags, all being supplied by NGOs who are then complaining that there are people in sleeping bags and people in tents on our street other people begging on ah, our yeah, street. but no hold on no N- NGOs that supply the likes of sleeping bags and tents surely they're doing that as a desperation measure because the alternative is that these people will literally be sleeping out in the open they're doing no more than that not necessarily that's not necessarily the case at all Michael I mean that's not necessarily the case at all as I said to you a few minutes ago I've just passed two buildings on this street one just down there at Luke Street and one on Townsend Street, where there is over 40 premises, 40 flats, lying idle for the past 10 years under the control of one organisation, which is purporting to represent the homeless, and they're lying idle. Now, I can tell you this much, Michael, OK, it wouldn't take a weekend to put those things back into order for emergency accommodation. I've got situations where there's plenty of opportunity to do that, but I'm saying here that on the one hand, you've got individuals on the streets, some of them are genuine, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them are genuine, but the vast amount of them are not. Okay, and just to finish up on this topic, when you say that though, is there not a danger that you uh, label everybody who's on the streets as not being genuine in terms of being at a point in their lives where they're desperate enough too big for money. When you say that some of them are, is there not that danger then? Are you not in danger of labelling everybody who's in that scenario and, and the general public having an attitude towards everybody they meet in that scenario that basically they're conmen? Or the con general men. public have that attitude already. And as for me as a public representative and an individual who walks those streets on a daily basis, whose mother walked those streets on a daily basis, who represent, I have to take these risks. I'm a ship that's not built for a harbour. I'm a ship that's built for the high seas and storms. And I'll weather those storms and I will say what I have to say with all honesty. But I am not here to disregard or to undermine the poor or those that are out there genuine. I have compassion. I give to many, many people out there. I speak to many people out there. But what I'm talking here, Michael, is about the truth. The truth can get you killed. Yeah, fair enough. Now, on, we, as you, you've mentioned a few times, and it was the reason I entered that subject was because... Uh, you yourself, you mentioned poverty and you mentioned addiction. 
these are both things that have been features in your own life, particularly in your early life. Tell me about Land Without God. Land Without God is a film, a documentary film, feature film that I basically uh, began to work on almost 20 odd years ago. I began filming it 10 years ago. It's taken 10 years to make. It is a full portrait of a particular family uh, in in, in Ireland. It deals with uh, three generations of that family and 120 years of incarcerations in the institutions and what that impact had on their lives. Uh, It is not a hysterical uh, film. It is not a blaming film. It is a deep uh, study and understanding of just exactly what happened to a class of people who weren't regarded, whose history weren't regarded, and who were basically uttered uh, and pushed aside by redress boards, uh, by uh, uh, the Ryan Report, and by the government. Uh, these are the very people who I represent in many, many shapes and forms. Is the film autobiographical? The film is the truth. Uh, the film is based around some autobiographical experiences. Obviously it is. Uh, but the, 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 the film is about witnesses. It's about those who experienced this. So it's autobiographical from, from my point of view, but also from the members who are in there. Uh, and it is, by and large, about members of my own particular family. But that family represents tens of thousands of families that this actually happened to. OK, and it's already at a screen, I think, in one of the film festivals and it should be in some cinemas next month in October. Yeah, it's been acclaimed abroad. People are really, really taken by it. It, it comes into the cinemas uh, on the 18th of uh, October in the IFI and in the Lighthouse Cinema. And I'd encourage everybody to go and actually take a look at this because this is part of the hidden history. This is where our history is written out because we didn't matter. We were surplus to needs. And that's the situation. Again, going back to our point about those that are panhandling on our street, if we don't challenge that situation then they become invisible you throw them a couple of coppers and they simply die there so actually challenging the situation challenging the system challenging all of that actually makes it much more visible and gives them integrity and gives them empowerment that's what I'm about When did you first encounter an institution? I was forced in an institution, and I always go back to this, when I was actually woke up one day in the Dublin City Council Corporation place because that in itself was a compound. Uh, I was born and reared in Mercer House, uh, surrounded in, in, by... In inner city in Dublin. In inner city Dublin, surrounded by corporation officials, surrounded by the church, surrounded by the police, surrounded by moralists who impacted on my family. Were you part were of poor. a big family? There was 15 in our family. Uh, there was 22 in the family beside us. And uh, basically, this was a constant. I was uh, first in institutions when I was four years of age. And my mother be- became pregnant again. My father had to go to work. And the situation then was that the nuns could say that if you gave them some money, they would look after you in Golden Bridge. My father paid them in Golden Bridge. In Golden Bridge, we were savagely abused uh, by the nuns there. So you, you spent time in Golden Bridge? In Golden Bridge, yeah. Um, um, and that was my first experience. It was pretty horrendous. Uh, I then, you know, had uh, obviously extreme difficulties after that experience and uh, over my early childhood, I had great difficulties uh, coping. I, I didn't attend school. I was then taken uh, from uh, my mother and my family and sent to Letterfrack. Was there an issue over stealing something minor? There was this? stealing dinky toys. And, yeah. But mainly it was about not going to school. It was yeah. also a way of controlling, you know what I mean, the housing need. There were 15 of us in two bedrooms. So when my mother was looking for her house or looking for a bigger room, they'd say, she will remove one of your children. And then that lesson, the burden. I ended up in Letterfrack at seven years of age. That's Letterfrack, the industrial yes, school industrial in... in, um, in in Connemara, in Connemara which yeah. is a horrific place run with the Christian but it's well documented you, you were 14 when you went there I wasn't I was actually about I think I was about 8 when I went there 8 yes. you, were, you were in there at 8 years of age yes about that yeah I mean, just trying, it's, it's difficult and I know it's your life story and it's very obvious to you but for people today it's difficult to imagine an 8 year old and you know any of us who've had kids realise the stage of development an 8 year old is at and 
how far along the way they are into uh, integrating into the world. An eight-year-old being taken from a home, large family in the inner city of Dublin, transported to this place in Connemara, run by religious. And the, 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 the sundering of all kind of family bonds and that, it, but this happens to tens of thousands of people. I, uh, well, and tens absolutely, of thousands I of understand that, but I'm saying in today's world we find it so difficult. But in to today's comprehend. world you hide this history. This is part of Irish mm. history. And for some strange reason, because it's working class, because it's about the poor, it's other doubt, like, like those on the streets, like the drug issue, like the homeless issue, all of those kind of things are agency captured. And we don't get a say in them. I'm probably one of the first, as a person who has been a witness in there, to get a say in this, to own my own story. This is what this you, is about. You were sent there at eight. Were you, were you, what kind of education did you receive there? You don't receive an education in these places. You're deemed, you know what I mean, to be an outlaw. You're deemed to be an undesirable. You're deemed to be used as slavery for the Christian brothers. And you're abused and you're booted around the place and you're sexually abused and you're tormented and you're tortured in many, many ways. You're on thousands of hectares of land every morning working like a slave for the Christian Buddhas. You're abused by the local individuals who worked on the farms. You're abused by the Christian Buddhas and then you're sub-abused then by the subcultures but in the, the school itself by the older boys and the bigger boys. And the impact is huge and then you're criminalised, undermined uh, and, you're, and your soul uh, ends up on fire. In Letter Frack, for instance, and, and it has been documented in place and there has been criminal cases against individuals, not necessarily with lesser, letter frack, but I'm just saying in general from that era. But w- were there any people in authority there who were sympathetic to the plight of young boys taken away from their families? Any? None. None. That remember, sounds very harsh that, not, that there was no humanity there There wasn't whatsoever. any humanity there. I mean, remember, Michael, it's not that long ago that the church had an iron grip on this country, that oh, yeah. the state stood idly by, didn't do anything, encouraged them, and no one could open them up because they'd be ostracised. That's the way it was. Mothers had their children taken from them. Mother and baby homes. Babies were thrown into pits. We know all of this situation. So I don't understand the shock horror about this. But what I do understand, Michael, is that the history that we have here is not finding its way into the national narrative. Everybody talks about this as if it's over there, as if it's other, those poor unfortunate people. They don't embrace it like they would embrace, say, the Holocaust, or like they would kind of semi-embrace the, uh, the famine, or they would semi-embrace the northern conflict. We are a, a, a class of individuals who are basically set upon, abused and used, surplused in need, and we never ever got justice. I'm dealing with organisations like the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, uh, the, the, the Council for Human Rights, the Irish Council for, for Human Rights, and all of the various organisations and Amnesty International. And for some strange reason, they concern themselves with other events rather than concerning themselves with the simple event that took place in this country since the foundation of the state and before, how tens of thousands of people were actually savagely incarcerated. But you wouldn't get it in the Soviet Union. You wouldn't get it in the gulags. We go on about the Russians. We go on about Pol Pot. We go on about Hitler. And yet, our own countrymen and women, our own church, our own law officers, our own departments of justice and health and education conspired to destroy us. Yeah, and I think there are statistics. No, conspired to destroy us, Michael. At at one stage in the middle of the last century, there was more people incarcerated 
predator population in one form or another in this country than there was even in Russia. What age were you when you got out of Letter Frack? When I got out of Letter Frack, I was about 11 years of age. I ran away to the UK. I got out because I was injured and I had to have an operation. Uh, uh, and when I recovered from the operation, which was a massive operation on my stomach from a kick I got off for Christian, but I managed to escape to uh, London. Uh, I got on the at boat. 11? At 11. At 12 years of age, I was in London. I was gone on the boat and I was gone. And did you have any family over there? No, did no, you? nothing whatsoever. Did you have any connections no, at all? No, no, none whatsoever. You got on the boat yourself at 12, you went yeah, to London? Yeah, there was about five of us got on the boat, five boats oh. got on the boat, trying to get away. And how, and how did you get on over in London? Very well. I mean, we just ran the streets. We, you know, we, we survived and eventually we came back through Northern Ireland, uh, through the Belfast in 1969, around that time. What age were you then? I think I was about 12 years of age. You're still, you, so you weren't in London? And then we were arrested, you know what I mean? Uh, it was interesting, going through Northern Ireland at the time, and arrested and then incarcerated in Dangan. Uh, you know, until I was 14 years of age. Dangan is the industrial school it's down a, in... It's a reformatory school it's a reformatory in County school in Offaly, right. Offaly. So you were, you were incarcerated then until yeah. you were 14? About that time, yeah, in and out of the place. And then I was incarcerated in, in and out of Marlborough House. Uh, and then at 15, 14 years, 15 years of age, I was sent to St. Patrick's Institution prior to being sent to Dundrum for the criminally insane, where they certified me insane. So, hold on. Uh, when you, you come back from England, you're sent to Dangan. Mm-hmm. And then after that, St. Patrick's, that St. Patrick's Institution yes. the, for Young Offenders in mm-hmm. Mountjoy. Yeah. You, you, you were sent there mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. How long were you in St. Patrick's? For five years. And what was the crime you committed? That, uh, five I was years accused ago? of, uh, of, uh, of uh, malicious damage to Dockerels on South Great George Street. I was 15 years of age. Uh, I didn't get a fair trial. I was you spent five years behind five effectively years. So didn't do. Youth detention centre for that? Well, it wasn't a youth detention centre, it was a prison. Yeah, five yeah. years you got for that. You, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and, from, the, and de- from there you were sent to Dundrum at one stage? Be- prior to that I was sent to Dundrum because they certified me insane because they had no evidence. And of course when the judge saw that I was certified insane, so they made two and two and they said, yeah, but he's capable of doing this. Crime. And who certified you insane? The doctors. But the reason why they certified me insane, which was very interesting, was to actually get me to Dundrum because they had to get me to Dundrum to see was I insane. So in order to get me there, they certify you insane, they bring you there, they realise you're not insane, and then they decertify you and drop you back to the prison. And but in the meantime, that remains on your file. Just jumping ahead briefly, years later when you got all, all your file under Freedom of Information, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you discovered a lot of this. Did you know at the time that you were being certified as being insane? You assume at the time that people care for you. You assume at the time that there's justice. You assume at the time that you did certain wrongs and that you're going to get righted. But when you read your file, all this becomes fallacy and untrue. They didn't care about you. In the files, I wasn't, didn't exist. They existed in the file and their portrait of me existed in the file. But I didn't exist anyway. I thought the files were shocking when I read them, that people could write such vile stuff about a child. I mean, really condemning a child. So the next person that read that file would condemn that child. So there was no, there was no sense in all of the files that I read that any of these individuals had any empathy or compassion for the child. This is the thing I'm wondering about and I, we, we know, I accept completely what you're saying in that there's not proper acknowledgement to the past and particularly because what you were dealing with was largely people from very poor and disadvantaged background. Even taking that into account, Mannix, I have to say along the lines I have heard stories here and there, individuals where people who had been incarcerated said, well there was this guy who was humane, who, who, who did show some bit of empathy or sympathy for me. Are you saying that through all these institutions all the way along, you didn't encounter anybody that, that, that you saw some bit of humanity in them towards you? 
I'm saying that out of the corner of my eye, you would see certain things, that you would experience certain things. But in the, in the main, by and large, nobody came to stop it. So when they talk about the good Christian brother or the good priest, mm. they didn't stop it. They didn't shout. They turned the other way. They turned the other way. They might have offered you a bit of comfort and they may have offered you a bit of kind of like, you know, uh, you know consideration. But they never turned around and said, stop abusing this child, stop beating this child in an inch of his life. That was right across the board. Which I mean, is, yeah, and you, key, must, I and you must include in this. You must include in this on Garda Shia Khan. And you must because include wider society. Yeah, but, well but, the, but these were the people that were charged with our welfare. And the police force that we were in, although it was a non-armed police force, were pretty brutal to us as children. And I know that because a lot of them apologised to me. It's a different police force today and it's getting better and better and better. And good luck to them on that. And I have an enormous amount of respect for them. But certainly during my childhood, yeah, being kicked around the police station was was an, was enormous. They were they, they were functionaries of what was a cruel state. There's absolutely no question about that. A cruel state is made up, Michael, of cruel people. Yeah. You know what I mean? That yeah. whole business of the Nazis being you know the, yeah. the, the mundane nature of it, and you know even after the fall of, of 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 Berlin, these were still cruel people. Now, as I say, the cruel state is still in existence, but the cruel state won't acknowledge really and truly its history, and it's quite interesting how that history gets stolen by the left you know, where they say that they're going to represent us, or even by the right who said they're going to give us money. But nobody's gone to jail. No church is closed down. In Australia, at least, they arrested one or two of them. In America, they, they treated that as organised crime. In Ireland, you know what I mean, you get people like, you know, I'm sneaking back to the church. You get the angels ringing out. And I, I'm a man of faith, by the way, Michael. I have a big, right. big faith. Hold on, just go back, go back, go back to your history. You, you, you're in St. Pat's, you spent five years in there. What became of you when you got out of St. Patrick's? It's what happened when I was in St. Patrick's, which I actually found well, more interesting. Because, I mean, basically what happened, I had a breakdown. And I you were then, a teenager at this stage. I was a teenager, so I went into a fairly severe breakdown, you know, where I examined, you know, what I was doing and my existence and what was happening. And I became conscious, you know, and I began to realise that everybody that was in the jail that I was in was in the, in the institutions. Everybody was there, was there all that time. And I was witnessing people suicidal, people self-harming, people like, you know, falling into terrible states. And this was a nightmare. I was in hell. And I woke up at like, you know, at 17 years of age in this particular nightmare. And I couldn't tell anybody about this particular nightmare because I didn't want to go back to Dundrum. So I basically kept it to myself and, and began to kind of work my way through the difficulties of my life. Uh, and I would say, you know what I mean, that I began to look at life and my life in a very, very different way. And tell uh, me about your encounter with addiction. My encounter with addiction was I came out of the institutions at uh, 20 years of age and I got involved in the arts because the arts came into the jails and I picked up with them and I wrote plays. I wrote The Liberty Suit with the Sheriff. Was that, was, was that where, you, where you encountered the arts first? I Not mean, really. I, I was always involved in the arts and always involved in expression, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but I found an expression in the theatre world and I found an expression in the theatrical community, you know, that I, that I joined when I came out of jail. That community, unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, was actually always, you know, fond of the drink. So was Ireland fond of the drink, you know. So you could actually have this great, I suppose, melting pot where no matter who you were and what you were, you could all have one thing in common. So that was drink. So you could get down to the forecourt where you'd have hardline criminals and Republicans drinking with Angardashi Akon and not necessarily talking to each other. So you had this great leverage. But so you got, were also carrying that trauma. 
Well, we did, most people don't know they're carrying the drug. Yeah, yeah. And so I began drinking, and when I had my first drunk, you know what I mean, it sent me off into a very different person. And then that just took off. So over a 20-year period, I became a chronic alcoholic. My main drug of choice was alcohol. That caused my more devastation. And how, and how did you find the theatre? Did, did, did you get some solace in there? Did, 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 did you find it fulfilling? The theatre was very, very interesting in the sense that it could give you, like, you know, a persona, it could give you an opportunity, it could give you a kind of a a, 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 a an artificial uh, presence. But it didn't fix the pain. You could write about it, you could act about it, but you didn't actually deal with it. It wasn't until, as I say, I was 40 that I began to put the pen down, put the drink down, put the acting down, and go into therapeutic treatments for five years in Talbot Grove, in County Kerry, in Castle Island, where I met extraordinary individuals uh, who basically gave me the time of day and worked with me over a five-year period on all of my trauma issues, not just the drinking or the drugging, but also the sexual abuse, the child trauma, and worked me all the way through that for a length of time. So you, 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 you get to 40, you, you, you survive the institutions, you get involved in the arts, you get involved in theatre, you obviously have a talent for that, you, 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 you become addicted to alcohol, and then at the age of 40, was this, this was transformative, this time you spent in, in, uh, in recovery in Donald Well, I've done everything else, Michael, except actually get recovery. I've done everything else except get the 12-step programme. I've done everything else except take a look at me. I had to get honest with me. I had to constitutionally you know, be honest and I had to constitutionally change myself. So I remember the day vividly. I was on my way actually to commit suicide. That's what I was going. I, was, I knew exactly the spot where I was going to do it. In. Where? It was in County Kerry, you know, I was going to do it. Uh, and I began to see the mountainsides and then it began to dawn on me that really I hadn't I had unfinished business to do. So I decided I would go and go back and go into Talbot Grove, ask them to accept me and that I would do anything that they said I should do. So that's what I did. I surrendered myself. I didn't put myself in the equation. I didn't question anything. And I went along with what they said. And now I have a, a very, very powerful life beyond my world. Uh, how, how long did you spend in there? I spent one month residential treatment and I spent two years after care with the various councillors, and I spent then a number of long years afterwards working with an absolute gentleman called Mr Ted McCarthy, who's now deceased, he passed away last year, and he trained me up uh, in everything that I needed to know and the equipment that I needed to be able to deal with my life on a daily basis. So he brought me through all of my traumas, uh, so so much so that we eventually then looked at all my files, I then took the state to court, we were involved in the redress, we were involved with the apology, uh, I challenged all of those situations. I worked tirelessly with the, uh, those who experienced child abuse uh, and wrote plays. And you produced one, one of your plays, and I think this is where I first encountered it, was nearly 20 years ago, James X. Yeah, How James, did that come about? James X came about through basically, like, you know what I mean, um, telling that story that needed to be Telling told. your story? Well, telling the story. It wasn't just me. This happened to thousands of individuals. I just used myself as a template. And although it's autobiographical, if you read the Ryan Report or any of the testimonies that I read, they all read the exact same. I just happened to have an opportunity to put it out there. And also with the state documents and also put it out there as a visual art piece. But the, but the basis for, correct me if I'm wrong here, the basis for James X was you used your file, the record of you in all the various institutions that were there. You used this, the literal, um, uh, the documents, as the raw material for that theatre production. I used them as the raw material. But at the, at the final analysis, you know, when, they, when, when all of that breaks down and that facade isn't working, then the character James X talks about what he's really here for, to tell what happened to him as a child and to speak about being raped and tortured. 
you know, as a seven-year-old. In other words, there's, there's the official James X there's and all, there's the real James Yeah, X. and then there's the performer James X and there's all those kind of, you know, you, you for of recalling that takes place within the play. And then at the end of it, there's the devastating statement that he makes, that they actually didn't give us love, that they didn't give us care, that they didn't give us consideration, that they betrayed us. And then it's about handing back that shame. So James X has travelled the world the lots of people wanted. Uh, it was a radical piece of work and I was very pleased with it. And it was a political piece of work. Through that whole process then I began to realise that I to do other work uh, and also I needed to kind of, you know, you know, continue the growth in my life. So, you know, James X was a profound piece that won the Irish Time Award. It was well received in Cork, Galway, Limerick, all over the world. It was a profound piece and it got me in touch and it helped a lot of people and it was a vehicle. But by the time I had done James X, I had recovered. I had worked proper therapies. I had really done very, very hard ground work. So the idea that art as a therapy for me wasn't something that I was doing, but for others who were in the audience, it was. And so it was very, very important to do it. So it triggered off things like The Darkest Corner in the Abbey Theatre. It assisted Mary Raftery, may she rest in peace, in terms of States of Fear, because Mary Raftery saw it when it was in its infancy called Talking to the Wall and built States of Fear around uh, the kind of stuff that I was doing. That's how that all came about. So there was a lot of different things that spun off from it. Um, but at the end of the day, Michael, you know, it always comes back to yourself in the morning. It always comes back to yourself in the day in those moments when you're either in the Dublin City Council or in the dark at night and your history and your, 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 your experience can come upon you and hit you. And that's when you really need your gods and all your gods and all your fates. And you mentioned Dublin City Council, uh, having been through all that and particularly into the arts, and uh, I think you were very well regarded there, to be fair, and, and you obviously the talent for it. Not many people from that world look towards politics for the next step in their lives. How did that come about for you? That came about through basically um, watching um, a councillor uh, and a city official laugh at my mother one day when I was passing by the flats. She was asking him about something. So was this when you were young, or was no? This, this was like this was like ten years ago. Right. I was going to visit her, and she was uh, she was approaching a Dublin City Council individual and also a local councillor about an issue, and they were dismissing her and laughing at her. So I went up to both of them and I said, "Look, I'll have you shifted, and I'll take your seat." And I did both. You did both. I did both. Yeah. On the basis of their, their conduct. Yeah. Yeah. and my class was never represented. My class was always, you know what I mean, you know, represented by Shinners or represented by the Labour Party or represented by a certain brand of Fianna Fáil. Probably well represented, better represented by Fianna Fáil than it was by the others. I will know in fairness, all, all those parties would claim that they do represent yeah. them. Your... There's a lot of people that claim. Right, fair enough. Know, but, but at the end of the day, Michael, the point of the matter is, is that we've moved nowhere as a class nowhere as a class. As a matter of fact, we've fallen way back into a subclass, surrounded by criminality, surrounded by broken down estates, surrounded by drugs, surrounded by armed guard of Shia No one is representing us. But when it comes to a big bag of money that the state may offer, they're all in there. All the activists are in there. All the political parties are in there. And all the left are in there to say, oh, we'll do that. But in the meantime, the class that I come from all across this country have not moved or made any progress whatsoever. Okay, and when you ran for the City Council, what year did you run for the City Council first? 2009. And did you get elected first go? Absolutely, yeah. 
you ran, and how did you go about it, Manny? To the extent, did, did did you talk to friends and ask you no, ask no, them to I go canvassing for? No, I went to bed in an honest way. I put out lovely posters, good posters, strong posters. I stood up against the Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour, Sinn Fein, people before proper. All of those I stood up against, and I stood my ground, and I knocked on the doors, and people recognised me, knew who I was, knew what I was about, and I knew my issues. It wasn't just about the class that I come from. A lot of middle class people, you know, in Sandy Mount voted for me because they actually knew what I was going to do and that I would be honest and that I wasn't making a career out of politics, that I wasn't becoming like, you know, a kind of, you know, a, you know, a, a member of a political party who was going to stand up to bogus ideologies or bogus principles, that I was going to do what I was going to do and I was going to make that difference. And you've been re-elected, you've been re-elected twice I since? I have been re-elected twice since, yeah. yeah. And how a lot of people who go into politics who weren't it, who haven't spent, you know, their 20s and 30s going to meetings and ogre this or that or whatever. A lot of them, when they go in, and I've seen this particularly with a couple of former journalists and that, they, they're taken aback by the whole environment and what people see as being the slow pace of things and how hard it is to get change. How did you find it? I, I found it fascinating. I mean, I found a place where, like, you know, half the politicians don't read the documents to be a laugh. I mean, again, they have their ideology, so they're sitting in their little tent. But when the business of the state comes to be done, when the documents have to be read, when you have to challenge the CEOs or the Dublin City Council officials, you can only challenge them on what's on that document. That's what I do. Why read those documents? And I can turn around and I can say to whoever is the CEO or his deputies or any of the politicians, have you read the document? And in most cases, they actually haven't. They don't know what they're talking about. Most of my politician friends in Dublin City Council don't really understand the entire city that they're meant to be in charge of. They understand kind of local issues, which is grand, but there's a bigger picture here. You can't just live locally. People come into the city centre, but when it comes to the city centre, oh no, we don't want to know about that situation. So when it comes to traffic, when it comes to sewage, when it comes to antisocial behaviour, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to housing and homelessness, when it comes to the, the NGOs and all the various things that make up this city and all of the people, There'd be very, very few would have the kind of understanding of that that I would have because I understand that situation because I make it my business. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there, Michael. I wouldn't be there. I go into a meeting to actually, you know, get results. So I do get results and that's the situation. I'm not looking to be my career to be elected into Dáil Erden. I would certainly run for Dáil Erden. But I'm interested... You ran for Dáil Erden already, didn't you? I ran for Dáil Erden and it was 2016. It was a very interesting and I had to see the kind of anger that was out there and it was a great experience. And I would run again to do that. You know, whether I get elected or not is not the issue. The point is, is that you get the capital and the experience out of that. So I can apply that to Dublin City Council or I can apply it to my life or I can apply it to issues. I deal with issues in the city centre. I equally deal with issues in County Kerry or County Cork or County Limerick because people hear me on the radio and they ring me and say, could you help me with this? Another thing that arises, your, your background and your politics, to some extent, your, your, your representation as you see it as, of the working class, all would point to you being of the left, so to speak, to the extent that there is a left or right in the country. Yet you, 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 you seem very critical of most of those who um, consider themselves as being left wing. I saw that at the last local election, you had a close encounter with people before profit in terms of your seat and down at the county, and you described them as the Taliban, which Absolutely. people would say is a bit harsh. Well, I mean, like, you know, I mean, what's wrong with being harsh? You know what I mean? I didn't put a bullet in their head. I didn't beat them around the back of the neck. You know what I mean? It's not being harsh. I mean, these are the language. If it was on the other foot that they said the same to me, they're the harsh ones. They're the ones roaring shame, shame, shame. They came into the polling booth when there was a general election taking place, when there was people doing a count, doing a job, a workplace of workers, ordinary everyday men and women, and decided to do a big selfie moment with old Murphy rolling their heads off and close the countdown twice. 
and disrupted the whole situation, took the right off their own vote, and then tried to undermine me uh, in the in the final account. And I simply called them out for what they for what they were. This is an organisation who a couple of years back were totally anti-drugs and out there rolling their heads off. Now they're totally pro-drugs. Because well, they're pro-legalisation of... Michael, they're pro-drugs. Let's get this straight. They're pro-drugs. You know what I mean? Like they're legalisation... No, I don't think that's fair. And that, but that is, you see, the thing about it is, is that that is a fair description. If you take a situation where you, where you decriminalise drugs, where you legalise drugs, you're pro-drugs. And you're not addressing what's going on in our communities. So they'll abandon, those left individuals will abandon their supposed role with the workers and the working classes in order for a populist vote. Because the people who'll only benefit from decriminalisation and, uh, and legalisation will be the middle classes. OK, we'll even put, put that in context, just <coughs> briefly in terms of that issue about the legalisation of drugs. Quite possibly you're correct. The, the, the middle classes would benefit from a decriminalisation. Some in the working classes who, because of, of, of family backgrounds, because of deprivation, are more susceptible to drug addiction problems. Some, and let's not tar everyone with that brush, but some of them, perhaps, it might put them in more danger. Is that reason enough? If for socio-economic reasons, for cultural reasons, for reasons for, for reasons of taking the, the criminals out of the chain, is that reason enough not to move in that direction? We know the devastation that drugs have had on communities, without doubt. We haven't addressed that situation at all. We've only decided that the best way to address this is to legalise it. It's just crazy. It's as crazy as having an injection room down in Merchant's Quay, but no treatment. So you're bringing people in to inject heroin, putting them back on the streets, but you're offering them no treatment. But treatment, to be fair now, again, people who do that sort of thing, in an ideal world, they'd be falling over themselves to offer treatment, but the resources are simply not there. So you're talking about emergency measures in order that people can maintain some sort of lifestyle where they don't have to resort to criminality. Two and a half million euros, Michael, will be spent on the supervised injection centre. Two and a half million can take an awful lot of people off the streets that I'm dealing with and give them rehabilitation and detox. And they would go for that. Nobody on those streets, Michael, is saying to me, when are you opening the injection centre? Nobody who's out there doing gear or heroin or any of those situations saying, when are you going to legalise this? And even if you do legalise the situation, do you think that those out there who are on, on their knees will actually stop stealing to get their heroin fixed? Will st- stop stealing to get their fix? That's the situation. So while the middle class can afford the drugs, and again, I'm not anti-middle class because most middle class are coming from the working class anyway, but sometimes they forget that process. Our situation is catastrophic. So you've got to remember the bigger community as well. Not everybody in the working class community is doing drugs, but the whole place is being criminalised as a result and terrorised. So you've got drug terrorism. Are you telling me that if you legalise it tomorrow morning, the drug terrorism is going to stop? No, it's not going to stop at all. But what I'm looking for, for the people out there who are in desperation, is treatment, treatment, treatment. I am in this studios now today as a result of treatment. As a result of scraping together the money and people willing to work with me. And those doors can only be opened through more and more detox beds, putting the money into rehabilitation, putting the money into changing the dynamics of what's going on in the working class communities. Remember, Michael, all of my family, most of my family, you know what I mean, are still suffering. They haven't moved on. In Lamb Without God, we address the issue that the unthinkable happened to us, the unfixable happened to us, and that we were brushed aside. Our history is brushed aside. So if you were having a situation that you had a merchant's key, somebody held Shamrock Dermistry or Mercer House, that was, that was happening in Sandymount, or that was happening in Fox Rock, or that was happening in Castlenock, 
there'll be an outcry, there'll be ructions, there would be government ministers would lose their jobs. But because it's happening to us, because it's happening in our class, nothing is really happening, except, except the big earners. And I have to say that, these are big earners. We're not getting the benefit of any of this situation. But when you say big earners, what are you referring the to? The money is going into a whole series of places that it shouldn't go or into. the money for treatment? The money, no, the money that's meant to be in drugs task force, oh, totally right. million Sorry, euros, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all been misplaced and misspent. The money that's potentially put aside by the HSE for the Drug and Direction Centre is being misspent. Well, I think, though, to be fair, a lot, a lot of organisations, they're non-profit organisations, a lot of people dedicate their whole lives in the area and they may have different ideas from you than you have about it. And look, it's quite possible Listen, there, there may be mismanagement. It is possible. I don't pe- think... There's lots of great people in the church, Michael, who dedicated their lives to a lot of things. And look what happened. I'm not suggesting for a moment that there aren't people out there with good intentions. But the situation is this, that these are organisations that need to be held accountable. And as I said to you 10 minutes ago, if you walk out that door and walk down to Townsend Street and Luke Street, you'll see a blocks... Blocks of Dublin City Council premises that were handed over to an NGO, a homeless organisation, and they've been lying idle for 10 years. So, so you, Michael, you have to ask yourself the fundamental situation. A bit like kind of, you know, uh, Schindler. How many people could you house here? How many people can you save? I'm in that business. I'm in the business every day of trying to assist people in real difficult situations from very elderly people to some very well-off people who are trying to find their families or their mother who was in a Magdalene laundry to people who were on the street who were in a heap. And at the end of the day, all I'm up against is an architect of containment, an architect of indifference that is designed entirely to close everybody down. In the meantime, Michael... You walk out, or walk out onto those streets on the weekend. You go up to any one of those streets and you see them individuals on the line down. They're begging. They're in all sorts of states. And you're thinking, how did we actually get here? Who's doing this? So you could give somebody on that street 50 quid and say, OK, there's 50 quid for you. Get yourself a hostel. Come back in a half an hour's time, that individual's still there. Yeah, I think it certainly, definitely there's a lot of people who would agree with you. Tell me, yourself, as you say, you, you, you were able to deal which are demons, if I could put it that way, in, in, in terms of treatment and that. Do you have a bit of peace? Um, sometimes. There's Is it something you can snatch now and again? Or c- c- can, you, can you go a while and just be happy with it? I think you have a job to do. You have a vision. You have a commitment. Um, it's very difficult sometimes, you know, not just in terms of my life, but when you see other individuals who don't understand, they're entangled in their mess. Some members of my family, some friends. I mean, my, my community has been destroyed. That's difficult to look at, you know. I, I can't look at that just as some sort of you know, political ideology. I've got to look at that in the real world. I've got, I've got to look at that as a, as a, as a person of faith. And I've got to look at the great injustice of it. So in terms of peace, I have to make it my business every now and again to stop and to get a bit of peace. I have a good life, Michael. I have a life beyond my wildest dreams, you know. Do you ever wonder, had you been fortunate enough to be born in different circumstances and to have had a childhood that was more conventional and perhaps was allowed you to develop through childhood better, do you ever wonder what you might have spent your life doing in that scenario? I don't really believe that anybody has an idyllic childhood. I believe we all carry torment and I believe we all carry unease and I believe we all carry a certain amount of unhappiness. They're all there. So sometimes in our lives they get out of control through circumstances. Rarely, you know what I mean, and sometimes very rarely you get a chance to write that. 
You always get chances in your life. Sometimes we don't take them. So the life that I have, Michael, is the life that I have asked to work with. At the moment in my life now, the way I have it, I wouldn't swap it for anything. That's a great thing to be able to say anyway. Um, Manix Flynn, thank you very much for thank joining you, us. Land Without God, One Man's Journey into the Dark Side of the Irish State will be screening in some cinemas. It is about the 18th of October. The 18th of October in the IFI and in the Lighthouse Cinema. And I'd encourage people to the go The IFI and the Lighthouse in Dublin. And, and, we'll, we'll, and then it will go nationwide after that. Great stuff. Mannix, thank you very much thank for very joining much, us. Uh, I'd also like to thank the producer Declan Conlon and JJ Vernon on Sound. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Spotify and you can let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at at MickCliff. That's it for today, folks. Thank you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.